This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. Many years ago, when everyone in America watched the Johnny Carson show, the big news of the day was Johnny Carson's divorce. It was announced. And Johnny Carson at the time was a very wealthy man by standards of the times. You know, maybe a couple hundred million dollars. And he lived in a community property state, California, which meant that in a divorce, the property was split equally, 50-50, whatever you got. So Johnny Carson's wife was about to be divorced, but she was also about to be very wealthy. And this was front page, top of the fold, big news. And Johnny Carson came out for his monologue and said, because he always talked about the news of the day, looks deadpan into the camera and says, there's really nothing going on today. Maybe we'll skip the monologue, <laughs> which caused the studio audience just to be just really funny. Big applause, all that. And I was kind of thinking about that this morning. Uh, Mindy Dom, who uh, was scheduled to be our guest, will be with us next week instead. Representative Dom, we always appreciate her time with us. But I was thinking we really do have a fish wrap today. We have plenty. Oh, but there's no news. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, there's, of course, Enormous news, the January 6th panel, which was riveting last night, starting with the news from the panel that although last night was supposed to be the end, the final hearing, it's not going to, it is not the final hearing. There will be more in September, starting with what we were talking about on the show yesterday, which is what happened to all those tweets from the Secret Service in real time? How can a governmental agency just destroy evidence of one of the most significant events in modern history, which is the attempted overthrow of the United States government. How could that happen? Who allowed that to happen? Who ordered it to happen? Who facilitated that happening? And who actually did it? Because there were several people that have been in that hearing that were asked to do certain things or uh, that didn't do them, that did what they thought was right rather than what was requested of them or what was ordered of them. Mm -hmm. uh, it is, of course, even in military structures, and these are military structures like the military itself, of course, and the police departments and the like, that when there is an illegal command, it is the obligation of the person to take the risk to disobey the command, notwithstanding command structure, and that you always, with this rare exception, of course, obey what your superior officer tells you to do. Well, so, interestingly, the Secret Service in particular is who I was referencing because Donald Trump was ordering them to go to the Capitol and the Secret Service drivers said, no, we're not going to the Capitol. We're right. going to the White House. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the, there are so many aspects of what we saw last night and which, of course, will be viewed uh, in the days to come. Uh, one of the interesting pieces of it is that Fox News didn't cover it. But that Fox News was part of the actual hearing. It was an irony of ironies. It, it is and it was. I think that one of the really fascinating parts of this is the cover-up. And I was thinking about how one would present this case in court. And one piece of the cover-up is Donald Trump engaged personally in the cover-up. And the cover-up was Trump sitting in the White House dining room, just a few feet away from the Oval Office, uh, with the following commands, which had to be his. There will be no entries on the White House daily diary. 
The Daily Diary is what chronicles all of the president's actions for a day. Now, it may say, as it did for Trump often, executive time. That means he's sitting around watching Fox News and the residents. <laughs> executive time. Executive time was an entry used for many presidents on the, in the Daily Diary, where they were, in fact, reading, studying policy and the like. Trump and many Taking was, the newspaper into the bathroom. That's what I call it at home on Sundays. <laughs> it's time for dad to have some executive time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Trump was watching television. That's what he did during executive time. But there were always entries. And in the Daily Diary, between about the 1 o'clock and when he made his announcement at a little after 4 o'clock in the, in the Rose Garden, there is no entry whatsoever for the Daily Diary. And you could just see this. Here's day 1, here's day 10, here's day 20, here's day 30. Entry, 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 entry. Every day, all the time. And then we get to this one period of time on January 6th. Nothing. That looks like a cover-up. That looks like someone who is intentionally going out of way, changing all of the customs of how information is kept and history is chronicled, and all of a sudden we have a blank. It's like the missing tape, the blank tape with Rosemary Woods and Nixon. Oh, yes, the nine and a half minutes just happened to disappear. Nobody believes that, and no one's going to believe that this wasn't intentional with regard to the Daily Diary. Plus, no phone records and... The photographer, the White House photographer, wanting to take photographs, knowing that something dramatic was going on and asked or ordered not to take any photographs. Right. And the White House photographer has almost, at least in public, uh, not public, in spaces where the president is not engaged, obviously, in, in uh, well, often it is, there are family photos as well. But the White House photographer is very wide range to take uh, photographs ordered to not take any photographs. And most importantly, the one that you just mentioned, Monty, the call logs, which are chronicled, 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 written, recorded, and available uh, for review, no call logs, none, zero. After four years of Trump in office, with call log after call log after call log after call log, you can just see these uh, as evidence going up on a screen in the courtroom. Day one, day 10, day 30, day 40, uh, year one, year two, year three, and here's this day blank, nothing. Who gave that order? And we will eventually find out, of course, that tr Trump uh, made sure that was true one way or the other, and therefore there are no call logs. So we don't know for sure other than Rudy Giuliani, who he called. We know he called him twice, once for four minutes, one for eight minutes during this time, and we know he was calling senators, so why don't we, why don't we, why doesn't the committee simply put under oath all the likely and a few unlikely Republican senators and say, did he call you and what did he say? There's no privilege there. This is an attorney client or executive privilege or anything like that. And let's see who he spoke to and what he said. Because we do know that he requested a list of senators or the senator's number. So he ostensibly was calling people on some phone that was untraceable to the White House call logs. But the president has a burner phone. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the much like Watergate, uh, the break in was bad. The cover up is what did in Nixon. And here we have really dramatic evidence of. Trump engaged in a process of trying to ensure that no one could know 
who he was talking to or what he was saying. And that evidence in and of itself, that lack of evidence, is really compelling in terms of consciousness of guilt. I can't let anyone know what I'm doing or who I'm talking to or what I'm saying. It is consciousness of guilt. It is dramatic consciousness of guilt. And it, of course, that is admissible evidence in court where it would seem Trump is headed. So I thought that last night was, in fact, a turning point, or as I can't remember if it was Liz Cheney who put it this way, the dam is breaking, and it seems to be true. Last night was particularly dramatic, I thought, with the two witnesses who were there because they were Trump loyalists. They are lifelong Republicans. They are hard right. They're at least very conservative, um, and they are devoted Republicans. And so it, was, it is hard for Trump or his backers to say, not that they're engaged in debate here, not that they care, to say, well, it's just a Democratic witch hunt, right? Um, and They are saying that. Well, and Fox are. News is lending credibility to that in the minds of those people as they are not covering these hearings. That said, there is, I think, as Josh Silver put it on our show yesterday, uh, Trump fatigue. The Republicans are tired of it, particularly when you can have Trumpism and uh, hard right-wing authoritarianism in place. Without Trump, you can have uh, Governor DeSantis. He'll pick up the mantle, and he'll be, as he's been described, Trump with a brain, and all those hard right uh, policies will come into place. We'll, they'll go after immigrants. They'll go after people of color. They'll uh, uh, abolish abortion. They'll, make, uh, they'll try to abolish abortion uh, as a right anywhere in the country. Um, they uh, have a Supreme Court that will be their handmaiden, their political handmaiden in, in this, in this right-wing uh, uh, dramatic change of the American system of government. And uh, it, it seems to me that there has been a change um, in terms of Trump and that Trump fatigue, and maybe it's just living here in this uh, bubble that we have in the Upper Valley, but it seems to me that there is a change. It feels different to me. Uh, Trump getting on the news today and saying fake news or doing his uh, 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 tweet on, was it Truth Truth Media? What's it, what is Truth it Truth Social, I Truth think. Truth Social, yeah. yeah. Um, doesn't seem that it's going to have that kind of power. And Liz Cheney, who was presiding last evening because the chair of the committee was uh, quarantining because of COVID, she is powerful. She's a highly conservative, anti-abortion, historically anti-gay, um, although she's changed that now because of her sister and apologized for that vote. Um, uh, Liz Cheney, her bona fides as a uh, conservative Republican, uh, given her family history, I mean, is unquestioned. So although she will likely lose her seat in the House of Representatives because of this, since uh, Wyoming is hard right Trump, uh, she nonetheless was so powerful in her equanimity and her just the facts kind of way of presenting things that it's hard for anyone to have looked at this and said, 
Well, we don't believe it. The witnesses were lifelong Republicans who start out by saying, I am so proud of what we and the Trump administration accomplished. And they quit that day because they did not want to be part of a conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States. And what they knew that we didn't, but know now, is that there was, in fact, a conspiracy to overthrow the government of the United States. And Donald Trump was at the head of that conspiracy or in the center of it, at least as it unfolded at the end, and he was part of it, it would appear, this is the evidence still to come, which is when did he join, how did he join, what did he agree to, what did he know, and when did he know it, there is still more evidence to come. We're going to take a quick break, and we come back, we're going to talk to Monty about what are the crimes, what does seditious conspiracy mean, and how about a conspiracy to interfere with the uh, functioning of the United States Congress? Trump is in deep, deep trouble. We're going to talk about those crimes and how he can be convicted of them after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. This weekend, the Co-Festival opens its 31st and final season with a collaboration spanning Knoxville, Tennessee and Putney, Vermont. It's Linda Paris Bailey and Sandglass Theater's Flushing, Make Room for Someone Else, a new show that deals with issues of race, legacy, and identity. After years of knowing each other as theater colleagues, Linda and Eric discover they both grew up only a few miles apart in Flushing, Queens. Though their life paths took them in different directions, they once again find themselves in a similar place in the process of handing their theater companies to a younger generation and facing the brink of retirement. Told with live performers, live music, and puppets, it's this weekend in our new home on the Hampshire College campus. And don't forget our other show this weekend, the CoFest Story Slam, Sunday at 8. Interested? Visit CoFest.com. That's K-O-F-E-S-T dot com. The CoFestival, where the only certainty is surprise. When it comes to investing, we're taught the higher the risk, the better the reward. Francis Ram, the money doctor, says it isn't necessarily true. We need to remember that with risk comes the potential for losses, and making up losses can set us back or worse, delay our retirement. You've heard the testimonials for years about how her patented program helps people become 100% debt-free, far ahead of schedule. But did you know that for more than 35 years, Dr. Ram has been helping people retire well without unnecessary risk? Dr. Ram says most people mistakenly accept that in order to earn attractive interest rates, they must tolerate risk and that choosing safety means settling for lackluster returns. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can earn competitive rates and minimize taxes without risking a single dollar of your hard-earned savings. Contact the money doctor at Hug Your Money for a free consultation. Call 413-773-3333 or visit HugYourMoney.com. There are farm fresh eggs just around the corner and beef across town. Local food is all around. It's a connection to your community, to the land and the people. There's a handy guide to the farm fresh food all around you, the local hero guide on the CISA website. You never know how close you are to something good for dinner tonight, something harvested just this morning. CISA's local hero guide, your guide to farm fresh food, on the CISA website, buylocalfood.org. 
Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Some weeks ago, I was here in the studio running the board for Buzz Eisenberg's show, The Afternoon Buzz. His guest, actually a segment host, Jeff Napolitano, uh, and I were talking during the break, and Jeff has a piece going on, what he calls the Merrick Garland Watch, which is where's Garland, why hasn't he uh, moved to charge Trump with a crime yet? And uh, I was talking with Jeff off the air, and I said to him, at that, which at the time I think was right, and Jeff said like, I was wrong. So I said, I don't think that Merrick Garland has a layup here. This is not a given that they have convictable offenses against Trump. Uh, and I think that at this point, that analysis has changed and changed rather dramatically because there is, I think, well, let's back up. As John Pucci tells us on the show in the federal system and uh, when federal prosecutors look at a case, they have to be really convinced that they are going to achieve a conviction. It's not just is there enough to indict. Uh, it's not even is there proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but is there proof beyond a reasonable doubt that is so clear that we are absolutely convinced we are going to win. We are going to get a plea of guilty or we are going to convict the person at trial and the statistics are overwhelming in the federal system, 95% of federal indictments end with guilty pleas or convictions after trial. That is an enormously high rate of conviction. And that's because federal prosecutors believe they've been through the case up and down and sideways and all the evidence say, we're going to win. And they don't indict unless they are really convinced they're going to win, and 95% of the time they're right. Now, that is a very high bar, um, and more people could be indicted, of course, but more people would be acquitted if they didn't have that internal standard of review before seeking and achieving an indictment. question here is, do they have that kind of evidence against Trump, assuming you, of course, could pick a jury and a whole sort of host of other, a whole raft of other issues that would present with a prosecution against Trump. That said, the crime of conspiracy uh, to commit a, another crime, conspiracy is a, so it, it becomes a crime itself. In other words, let's say you have, what well, this has nothing to do with Trump. We have Monty and I uh, decide we are going to, uh, oh, no, we're going to, we're going to, what are we going to rob? We're going to rob the uh, Sweetie's Candy Store. Okay. The corner so, of North of downtown Northampton. Okay, a good a good a good example. So, Monty and I are sitting here during a break and say, okay, let's go rob. And we agree to rob Sweeties, and then. But we're only taking candy. Uh, we're only taking candy, and, and this is only hypothetical. Okay, but we have an agreement. The agreement itself actually does not make the conspiracy make the conspiracy charge yet. 
It's an essential element. We have to have an agreement. Now, we don't have to have a handshake. Uh, we don't have to have anything in writing. We just have to have an agreement, which can be inferred from where, well, we're, we're tasting different chocolates to decide what we're going I'm to I'm going to take 100 grand, but not money. Again, <laughs> just the candy. Okay. So it's, conspiracy is an agreement. And it's an agreement to commit a crime. And then in addition to the agreement, there has to be some action, which need not be a, a crime itself, need not be illegal, in furtherance of the conspiracy. There has to be some overt act. So, Like we case the joint. Yes, exactly. We, we went inside to see where are the sour balls. Yeah. And then we might have a disagreement about sour balls versus M&Ms. Versus sour balls. I mean, I don't know about those. Sour Patch Kids I've had or other things. I don't know what well, sour those, balls or, or, or gumballs. Okay, there we go. There we go. Okay. So it's an agreement. It can be inferred. There has to be an action in furtherance of the conspiracy. And the conspiracy has to be to commit some other crime. There, of course, can be a substantive crime. Uh, and there can be the conspiracy. Conspiracy is an easier crime to prove because you don't have to prove that the crime itself occurred. It has to be an agreement to commit the crime plus some overt actions in furtherance of the crime. Is inaction an action in regards to this? Something I was thinking about this morning, and that's why I think yesterday's evidence was so compelling, which is it's not inaction. It is, in fact, the the actually the opposite of that people kept coming to trump and said do something do something do something do something and he did something which was nothing so he, dereliction of duty does that i don't think it's 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 the overt decision to not interfere with the insurrection itself it's true if he called them up and said go on go get him go hang mike pence now that would be more dramatic and uh, more compelling evidence, but the fact that he allowed it to go on and he knows and everyone in his circle knows that when Trump speaks, people listen. And those people at the Capitol would listen and did listen. And he decided to let the insurrection continue. That, I think, is evidence of his agreement with and it's his furtherance of a number of conspiracies, one to interfere with the work of Congress, and there are a number of different uh, crimes that uh, are of, of that nature. And that is a conspiracy that he appears to have engaged in before January 6th, on January 6th. And even if somehow you could believe that he was not part of it before January 6th, when he gave his speech, go and march on the Capitol, he certainly was part of it during the day, very much as the leader, I think, uh, and certainly as a dramatically involved co-conspirator. But getting back to your Merrick Garland situation and the Merrick Garland watch from Jeff Napolitano, don't you think that Merrick Garland has access to much more information than we do, but that Merrick Garland is in such a precarious situation doing something that no one has ever done before, which is indict a president of the United States? Former president still a president of the United States, and that in reality, they have to try him in the court of public opinion first, so that when Merrick Garland will actually go forward to indict, that an overwhelming majority in the country will understand why 
they're taking this extraordinary action? I think so. I think there can it cannot be viewed. Well, it could be, but there has to be a significant majority of the country that at that time or shortly thereafter does not see the prosecution as political but sees it as an exercise of the rule of law. Merrick Garland is by nature a conservative person. He has to make this judgment and evaluation and he has to get it right because in many dictatorships, something that we are hurtling our way towards, what happens after one leader is thrown out is he gets tried and thrown in jail. That sounds a lot like an authoritarian government. And to combat authoritarianism with something that looks like that is something that Merrick Garland really doesn't want to do. And if he brings the charge, he needs to be convinced in his mind that he's going to get a conviction because allowing Trump to walk out of that courthouse saying, see, fake news, it was a conspiracy against me, I really won the election, and this is proof of it, that would be worse in some ways than not bringing the charge at all. We'll continue this story, obviously, in coming days and weeks. We'll take a quick break, quick break and we'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Greenfield Community College and Holyoke Community College will both be receiving state funds to support their workforce development programs. The grants stem from COVID-19 relief funding and will provide greater access to training opportunities for underemployed and unemployed applicants. Each school will receive $735,000 and will support training programs in the healthcare, manufacturing, education, and technology literacy industries. The FBI confirmed that agents were carrying out court-authorized activity at multiple Hells Angels clubhouses in Massachusetts yesterday. The activity is tied to an ongoing federal investigation, according to representatives with the Boston Division of the FBI. The FBI would not provide additional details in order to protect the integrity of the ongoing investigation. And if you're looking to cool down this weekend, the Greenfield Historical Society has just the thing. The Historical Society of Greenfield is inviting people to join them to celebrate Mary P. Wells Smith's birthday with ice cream generously donated by Foster's Supermarket. An outstanding woman born in 1840, she's well known as the author of Boy Captive of Old Deerfield, as well as 20 other children's books. Stop and celebrate the 176th anniversary of her birth with an ice cream, photo fun, and Mary's fan club. The event will take place from noon to 2 p.m. at the Historical Society of Greenfield. Joan Holiday, WHMP News. Partly to mostly sunny and breezy today. Less humidity, but still warm. A high of 92 to 96. Scattered clouds tonight. Evening temperatures in the 80s. Overnight lows of 62 to 68. Mostly sunny again tomorrow, 92 to 96. Mid-90s on Sunday. Humid mix of sun and clouds. And watch out for some storms in the afternoon or evening. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rochevega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Con solo unas horas antes de la fecha límite, el presidente Joe Biden firmó una legislación el jueves por la noche para evitar un cierre federal parcial y mantener al gobierno financiado hasta el 3 de diciembre. El Congreso aprobó el proyecto de ley el jueves temprano. 
Los votos consecutivos del Senado y luego de la Cámara evitaron una crisis, pero los retrasos en otra continúan mientras los partidos políticos se adentran en una disputa sobre cómo aumentar el límite de endeudamiento del gobierno antes de que Estados Unidos se arriesgue a un incumplimiento potencialmente catastrófico. La Cámara aprobó la medida de financiamiento a corto plazo por una votación de 254 a 175, poco después de la aprobación del Senado en una votación de 65 a 35. Una gran mayoría de republicanos en ambas cámaras votaron en contra. La legislación era necesaria para mantener al gobierno en funcionamiento una vez que el año presupuestario actual terminara a la medianoche del jueves. La aprobación le dará a los legisladores más tiempo para diseñar las medidas de gasto que financiarán las agencias federales y los programas que administran. En otras informaciones, un día antes de que expirara el Programa Estatal de Licencia por Enfermedad Pagada de Emergencia COVID-19, el gobernador Charlie Baker aprobó el miércoles una extensión del programa hasta el 1 de abril de 2022. El programa fue autorizado por primera vez en virtud de una ley aprobada en mayo con la intención de dar a los trabajadores tiempo para poner en cuarentena, recuperarse, vacunarse o ayudar a un miembro de la familia a lidiar con el coronavirus. Estaba previsto que expirara el 30 de septiembre. La ley de mayo creó un nuevo programa de licencia por enfermedad de emergencia COVID-19 de 75 millones de dólares, que ofrece a los trabajadores hasta una semana de licencia pagada con un límite de 850 dólares. Yo soy Johan Rashivega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our weekly segment with Max Page. Max is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association. And today, Max, I would love you to bring us up to date on something that we keep talking about, I think appropriately, with our state representatives and senators uh, on the show, and that is the budget, which is about to be adopted by the Massachusetts legislature and then go to Governor Baker for his signature or his line item veto. There are many, many pieces of the budget that uh, reflect on and are important to education, both in the secondary schools, K, and K-, K through 12, and higher education. And I was hoping you could bring us up to date on where that those items stand, what the outlook is for education in the Commonwealth in this budget that is about to be adopted. Yes, so the, the budget was voted on, but of course the governor has a chance to veto the whole thing or individual items. Um, but for all intents and purposes, given the supermajority uh, that the Democrats have in both houses, uh, when they decide it's done, it's pretty much done and they will override any veto. So there's a lot of good news in the budget. Um, you know, I'm gonna, I wouldn't want to be all sun and light, so I will also end after I say the good news, some of the, the problems in this whole um, flurry of activity in late July. But there's a lot of good news. Um, and, you know, maybe I'll start with higher ed, Bill, which is that, you know, public higher education will see something like $200 million more in its budget this year. And that includes you know, decent increases um, to the campus operating line items. That means the basic, you know, the money to operate the university, which is um, often the most important line of all. It's what we look for to hire faculty and staff and run the various programs on campus. So that's great. Um, and UMass gets a, got a big healthy increase. Some of that covers the contracts for the employees. 
So it's not like free and clear brand new money to hire new people. Some of it pays the you know, um, cost of living adjustments. There's also though a big increase, a huge increase, I would say, um, given the cuts that have happened in the past, a $44 million for the state scholarship program. That's the basic, sometimes we call it mass grant. That's the, which the basic state scholarship program to help working class students go attend a public college or university. So that's a, that I'm very, very pleased of. It's not yet at where we need to be, which is to a guarantee of debt-free public higher education, but certainly any dollar we can put into student scholarships that lowers the amount of debt they take on or the amount of work they have to do to, to go through college is, is really valuable. So those are two major things in, in higher education. Um, there's also uh, something that there's been a lot of talk about called the success fund. These are specific funds designed for hiring staff or faculty and running programs that help students both get to college, but also through college to provide the supports because we have lots of students, especially in the community colleges who may go start for a year and then drop out and either never come back or it takes them many years to get a degree. That's not good for them. That's not good for the Commonwealth. So there's been an investment increasingly in there. Um, on the other side of the ledger, or rather on the other side, the K-12 side, you know, the legislature has committed to and has fulfilled its obligation to filling the third year of the Student Opportunity Act. That was the big major bill um, passed at the end of 2019 that uh, is over seven years. Ultimately, we will have $1.5 billion more in our public schools across the state and very progressively distributed, meaning Holyoke and Springfield get a lot more than, say, Longmeadow or um, even and Weston and Wellesley. So it was a one of the most uh, biggest increases in funding for K-12 schools in the generation and around the country and very, very progressive. And it's a seven year rollout and we are now in year three and they have fulfilled their obligation to that and other other elements of it, like increasing the amount for charter school reimbursement. When a kid leaves the, let's say my kid's schools, the Amherst Public Schools, they take their tuition, they call it tuition, to a private charter school. Um, and there is a formula for reimbursing the district because guess what, a kid leaves, you can't take five bricks out of the wall or you can't get rid of one classroom. You're still paying for the educators and the school building. So does the charter, the charter school, is the charter school paid by the school district from which the, the student otherwise the student otherwise would attend the uh, place where he lives? That's right. I, I, I'm not sure of the mechanics. I actually do think the mechanics are exactly as you say. I think the district gets the money because of the students and then transfers over, which is sort of adds insult to injury. But the point is the same, that um, those students that they had planned on in the school district over many years and built buildings and hired educators now um, has to send that tuition off to the charter school. So we have in increased the, the amount for charter school reimbursement to ease the, the pain of the loss of those that tuition. Meaning, as I understand it, Max, correct me if I'm wrong, that the school district that is losing a student to a charter school will now be reimbursed more fully. They're supposed to be, there's a formula, but they're supposed to generally be reimbursed by the state for the amount that they send to the charter school. Is that basically it? Yes, but, yes, that's right, Bill, but only for three years. So 
while I'm saying it's a good thing that they've increased the, the amount in this charter school reimbursement formula, it still is only three years. So after those three years, the district, it just eases, eases you into um, the pain, which still does not help because you've still built that building for a certain number of students. So it's not at all ideal. It's so, just, so, so uh, theoretically, the student uh, leaves, and for year one, two, and three, there's reimbursement from the state to the school district that is losing a student. But after that, the student, uh, uh, the school district still has to pay. So if they leave in, say, grades one, two, and three, the school district is on its own if the student stays at the charter school for grades four through 12. And they lose that money, every, exactly. they lose that money every year. That's correct. And it's not a full reimbursement, even for those three years. It's, it's a declining level each year. So um, as I say, it's good that there's more money in that program, but it's not, it's not, does not solve the problem of uh, charter schools draining public school funding. Max, before you go, I, I want to ask you about the UMass budget again, because you talked about the various ways in which the budget improves uh, the educational opportunities as well as funds the, the contracts and otherwise uh, moves us at least a, a baby step towards uh, uh, persons graduating with lesser debt. Well, it's not doesn't get us to debt-free higher education by any stretch, but it's a step. I'd like to know your take on something that we mentioned from time to time, and that is the infrastructure at the UMass Amherst Campus, at campus uh, which had deferred maintenance in the hundreds of millions of dollars, something that we don't that's hear correct. about. What, what's the status on that? Well, so that's another piece of good news, Bill, which is that at the same moment, I mean, this is, this is what happens. The, the term is ending on July 31st. It must end by law on July 31st, the legislative term. So there's a flurry of activity. So along with the, the, the budget is also a bond bill. That is a state bonding bill for various infrastructure projects. And they have allocated $750 million for public higher education. Now that gets divided among the 29 campuses, I mean, different projects, and it won't all be at once, but it is a significant statement that we want to set aside funds um, for uh, deferred maintenance. And, and let's be clear, every time the state spends a dollar on fixing its own buildings, its campus buildings, that's one less dollar the campus itself needs to go on to the private uh, bond market itself um, and pay for that. So UMass increasingly actually, UMass Amherst, my campus, pays over a million, hundred million dollars a year paying off their own bonds and that leads to more student debt so it's really good when the state pays for the buildings and the repair of the buildings with state dollars that is a way of preventing the increase in student debt we'll leave it there we speak every week with max page this is your state you max page is the president of the massachusetts teachers association thank you max for your time your insights and all the information that you share with us every week and thanks for your leadership thanks bill this is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
Martha Graham, Mum and Chance, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp, all on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Chance in their 50th year, Cherish the Ladies, A Celtic Christmas, the Martha Graham Dance Company with the Lost Graham Masterwork Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. In the mood for takeout? Want to find yoga classes, music lessons, or art supplies nearby? Save 30% on full-value gift certificates to dozens of local businesses and services from Springfield to Brattleboro and everywhere in between. Whether it's a quick bite for lunch, something nice for a special occasion, or just an excuse for some good old retail therapy, save 30% on full-value gift certificates at the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. RiverValley.com. Co-op. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Art Beat with Donna Bell Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest. Donna Bell, the microphone is yours. Or she just went blank, like right at the moment she was there and chatting. Like, oh, here, yeah. well, there you are. And Woo. she's back. Yes. Okay. Not about. Hey, it's Friday and I, my connection is back. Anyway, yes. How do our surroundings affect who we are and how we perceive the world? Artist Pamela Acosta Hernandez explores this notion among others. She joins us today to speak about her work currently on view at East Hampton City Arts Gallery. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Pamela, you are a Mexican artist from the borderlands along the Rio Grande Valley. Please tell us a little bit about your artistic journey to Western Massachusetts. Yes, so I grew up in a border town right along the Gulf um, in both Brownsville and in Matamoros. And that's where I went to art school in the now University of Rio Grande Valley. After that, I lived in New York for a couple of years before ending up 
in North Adams, which was a little bit of a harsh transition from living in Brooklyn. So me and my partner had gotten to know Northampton and the area since we were there. And we've been there since 2015 now. 2015. It's an amazing place, I have to yeah. say. <laughs> Once you come here, it's hard to leave. Yeah, now, yeah. <laughs> now, your work explores magical realism. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, for me, it's the blending of fantasy and real life, or kind of living at the edge of where there's a lot of you know, elements of the fantastic happening in daily life and taken as the natural course of the of daily life. Yeah. Mm. Now your show at East Hampton City Arts Gallery is titled Fragmentos de un Naufragio or Fragments of a Shipwreck. I'm intrigued. What inspired this title? Yes, so that title is based on one of the pieces in my show. It's one of the first like I've been working on this like single page comic format, which that is the title of one of the first pieces that I made in that series. And one of my favorite characters that I've been working with lately, which is sort of like a crocodile sea monster creature. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so um, what that refers to is um, no shipwreck in specific, but kind of like the fragmentation of the format itself. Mm -hmm. But that being said, there was a piece that I didn't get a chance to finish before the show was up that he's dealing um, also with a ship just kind of as possibilities for our future with climate change and climate catastrophe, which is um, a boat that is also a mostly self-reliant sort of vessel with like gardens and milling and structures, just part of like a story that me and my partner are working on. It's still it's still a very recent, but I was hoping it'd be. It, it, it sounds like a, a beautiful, magical place that you know travels everywhere. And you yeah, know, yeah. based based on some of the images that I see, um, there it's it's just a wonderful land or place. And now you 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 talk about your paintings, which have figures in them. Um, or beings, as you said, the, the creature you were talking about, sort of searching for missing elements of their existence or purpose. Can you talk about this? Are these, are these images and figures part of your own life voyage? Yeah, yeah, no, certainly. I feel like, I mean, a lot of the way in which I process like the world and living in it, is definitely explored through my artwork and through this more surreal um, worlds, essentially. But yeah, because I feel like, I mean, there's so much of a quest going on in, in living life at all in, in Earth and going about our existence. But yeah, there, there's so much of quest going on in the narratives that I like to create and paint and draw. And yeah, I, I like, you know, I like to think that the viewer can relate to that of like, yeah, we ourselves are on a quest and just like there's there's so much like from more quotidian aspects, like I have a character that I call the ethnographer and so much is just like little slice of life 
happenings there with like little ink drawings or just broader voyages of like unification or like you know spiritual explorations kind of who we are in the world can i ask a remedial question here for from a non-artist when when you're creating uh the, 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 these works, Pamela, are you using a model or are you doing this at just simply out of your imagination? How does these, how do they come to be? Yeah. So most of the time I don't work with models. Um, like it becomes like a very like physical experience for me where it's like, as I'm like kind of drawing and working at positions or stuff, I'll kind of like realize that I am in the position of like the characters that I'm trying to draw in place. But yes, so most of my work, I don't work with models. Sometimes I do reference photos, but more for surroundings or like details of rooms. And for me, at least it's a very sketch heavy process. I'll sketch a thing so many times before I actually start working on the final one. But yeah, no, probably for years I haven't worked with models because I do, or at least these days, sometimes I have human figures, sometimes I have just like completely made up creatures, but no, at most sometimes I'll use myself for a reference if I'm trying to like just get a quick, you know, quickly work out like, oh, wait, how does the human body do like this thing or how do we quite do this position? Now, um, if you could describe for us Pamela, one of your favorite pieces in the show, since this is radio, it'd be nice to kind of have a visual for what people can see at the gallery. Yeah, one of my favorite pieces at the show, which is funny because it's not one of my favorite pieces at home, but it kind of changed completely once the show was completely hung up. It's something that I did in 2014. It's the format is square on wood and you can kind of see the wood grain on their coats of like um, light acrylic paint. But what it is, it's this sort of like um, figure wearing a little red cape and it has a mask that is kind of floating off its face. And on the inside, it's just kind of like a universe with like stars and nebulae and that's just kind of floating right out of the figure. That one is one of my favorite ones. I feel like in the space, it works really well. It kind of has way more of a chance to shine than when I had it hung up at home. So how can we see this work? It's so wonderful to see. And I, I do also respond to some of the pieces that you have where the face sort of floats off and you see this inner world. Where is it? How can we see it? And how long will it be up? Yeah, so the show opened on July 1st. It'll be up through August 25th. The gallery hours are Wednesdays and Fridays from noon to two. And my show is going to have a second opening August 5th as part of East Hampton City Arts from 5 to 8 p.m. And it's in the Old Town Hall thing in East Hampton. Say again where it is, please. Oh, it's in the Old Town Hall building in East Hampton. I believe the address is 43 Main Street. Yes. So the East Hampton City Arts Gallery at 43 Main Street, you can see Pamela Acosta's show called Fragmentos de un Naufragio, and it is a wonderful show not to miss. Again, the reception is on August 5th. And thank you so much, Pamela Acosta, for 
sharing your work with us today, and congratulations on your show. Thank you. Thank you so much. Donabel Cassis, I want to thank you for bringing such wonderful artists on our show every week. Uh, hearing from Pamela Acosta today is inspiring. I can't wait to see this show. Pamela, thank you so very much for joining Donabel and us today. I really appreciate it. I really, really look forward to seeing this show. And Donabel, thank you so much for this wonderful, enlightening, and I think inspiring segment that you share with us every week. Dear Massachusetts, marijuana is now legal for adult use. Keep your kids and pets safe by keeping all cannabis products in child-resistant packaging. Store your cannabis in a lockbox out of sight and out of reach from your children and teach them that cannabis and alcohol are for adults only and that prescription medications are only meant for the person they are prescribed for. Brought to you by the Northampton Prevention Coalition, working together to protect the developing brain. NorthamptonPrevents.org Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station, 96.9. It's the music you grew up with. WHMP and the news will be right here when you get back. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock.